Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this, our last, sadly, lecture in the summer series. I'd like to begin by thanking the Small Special Collections Library and the Harrison Institute for their hospitality. It's a conundrum, isn't it? The adage, whether dogs come to look like their owners or whether owners come to look like their dogs. In our speaker today, we have a case where the collector comes increasingly to look like the man he collects. And is Scott Clemens, Clemens more like Aldous Minutius, or is Aldous Minutius more like Scott? Uh, it's hard to know, really. Um, both are classicists, both scholars, both keenly interested in printing, um, both um, financial whizzes. Um, Scott was born and raised in North Florida. He is a magna cum laude graduate of uh, Princeton University, yes, in classics. He first came involved with antiquarian books when he answered an advertisement in a local Princeton newspaper from Joe Falcone, who many of you might know. Um, he was looking for an assistant with a thoroughgoing knowledge of Greek and Latin. Now, the infant Scott had already formed, like a young Hercules, a collection of scholarly books on classical topics, but these were not antiquarian books. But his association with Joe, the bookseller, was the beginning of the end. He was a sophomore in college, and he became hooked for good. He assisted Joe at major book fairs. He wrote descriptions for his catalogs. He learned basic conservation and box-making skills. And uh, he bought his first Aldean at the New York Book Fair when he was a sophomore or a junior at Princeton. Now, if you have any doubts whether or not he's really a bookman, you need to know that he won the major book collecting prize at Princeton, the Alder Book Collecting Prize, twice. Once in his junior year and again in his senior year. If you want to know whether or not he's obsessive about printing down to the most minute detail, sort of like a guy in Venice at the turn of the century, you need to know that Jerry Kelly designed his wedding invitations. I'm not sure that was his wife's idea. Um, Scott joined uh, Brown Brothers Harriman in 1990s, had a variety of roles in that firm. Uh, he's been the chief investment strategist since 2010, and uh, if you, you'll learn a lot today about all this, but if you want to learn about investing, go to YouTube and put Scott's name in. It's better than watching Wall Street Week, I can assure you. He is uh, the main spokesman for the firm. Um, I am a Jesuit, and I have, uh, on this feast of St. Ignatius Loyola, sent my spies into the deep thickets, and I can tell you that Scott plays several instruments, including the banjo, the mandolin, and the ukulele, and in the summers, 
He regularly attends the Swannanoa Gathering in Asheville, North Carolina, where he plays 19th century Appalachian music. He serves on advisory boards of the Morgan Library and Museum in New York and the Getty Research Institute in L.A. He's on the board of directors of the Research Corporation for Science Advancement, which is uh, the oldest foundation in the United States dedicated to scientific research. He's a director of the Grolier Club in New York and treasurer of the Bibliographical Society of America. He chairs, fittingly, the Friends of the Princeton University Library. It's a tautology to imagine that Aldous is a Renaissance man. He is, after all, the man who brought the Renaissance into being in many ways. But here to talk about the man who made the Renaissance is truly a Renaissance man. And we are honored to have him in his midst. Scott. So I don't know about you, but I could listen to Michael Suarez talk about me for the rest of the evening. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for that very generous introduction. Thank you all for your interest in this very broad topic. And a particular note of thanks to my fellow sufferers, uh, students in descriptive bibliography this week, who uh, should be furiously collating on the second floor of Clemens and instead are here for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. I'm either sorry to drag you away from your homework or I'm happy to provide an excuse. So take, take whatever situation best fits you and, and we'll run with it. I am haunted by a particular counterfactual history, a history that did not happen but raises a big what if. And that counterfactual history is what would have happened had Aldous not existed? And I know that sends a shudder down everyone's spine, so I cross my fingers when I say that. On one level, I wonder what it was that I would have collected. I actually believe that collectors are mostly born, not made, so I think about what, what else would have grabbed my fancy. On a much higher, much important level, I believe that the world would be an immeasurably poorer place had not the right man, named Aldous Minutius, found himself in the right place, called Venice, Italy, at the right time, the last decade of the 15th century. And what I aim to do over the next half hour or so is to demonstrate that to you. And it is my claim that this confluence of people, place, and time actually led to, created, saved Western civilization. No intended offense to the Irish or any other culture that lays claim to that. It wasn't any of them. It was actually uh, all this. Before telling you that story, let me tell you a little bit about mine, and Michael's already put uh, some of it in front of you. I first met Aldous as an undergraduate classicist at Princeton. I became very interested in the transmission of text, how text, classical text, found their way from manuscript into print for the first time, the application of printing technology to that. Classics at Princeton was then, and still is now, a small, a delightfully small department, and one that relies very heavily on primary Material. So I was introduced to the special collections at Firestone Library at Princeton as a freshman and their utility in the classroom. There's a real lesson there for getting students and getting scholarship uh, sort of out of the classroom and into the library and then back into the classroom. It was a very flowing thing. There were a lot of great book people at Princeton at the day. I was surrounded by people like Alec Wainwright, Dale Roylance, Bill Joyce, Steve Ferguson, Bill Scheide, uh, his library at the time, Bill Stoneman, 
Uh, Bill Shidey, by the way, who I uh, assume some of you have met, turns 100 years old later this year. So there's something about old books that makes people stay young, and he's still buying books. Um, so that confluence in my life of classics and book collecting, plus working for Joe Falcone, you know, Michael, I'm not the only one in the, the room with a Falcone provenance. Yes. Rare Books was owned Donna C. Spent a few years working for Joe as well. So there's either something in the water of Don at 69 Jefferson Road, or probably more likely the enthusiasm that Joe has for rare books that's very infectious. But I remember vividly a conversation with Joe in his office one afternoon where he said to me, you're a bright young classicist with an interest in, uh, an interest in transmission of text. You ought to collect all those minutiae. To which I naively said, and I was 19 years old at the time, I said, who's that? And those are probably the two most faithful and expensive words <laughs> I have ever uttered, with the possible exception of I do, but that's a different story. So my wife's not here anymore, so I can say that. Let me turn now and tell you uh, Aldous' story. How many of you are familiar with Aldous Venusius to some degree? Oh, this warms my heart. You people, I love every one of you. It's so nice to see this. So nice to see this. Aldous, and I don't think I resemble Aldous, at least physically, Michael. I, I thought maybe you'd seen my presentation. Third profile. Yeah, okay. I need to get a printer's hat, and maybe it would. Aldous was born in Bassiano, a small town southeast of Rome. He was a Roman citizen uh, around the year 1452. The, the particulars of his birth were a little murky. He spent his early years studying in Rome and Ferrara, and Ferrara was then the center of Greek learning, such as it was. I'll come back to that. He came into the circle of such renowned Greek scholars as Battista Guarino and eventually took a position as the private tutor to Alberto and Leonello Pio. They were the nephews of Pico della Verandola and they were the young princes of Carpi. This was a really comfortable life. This was a life sort of around an aristocracy. He, he was not a poor and starving scholar. He didn't have to wonder where his next meal was coming from. He had two young charges that he taught and he had plenty of time to correspond with the leading Greek scholars of the day. And we know that he did. At around the age of 40, and that was old in the 15th century, at around the age of 40, Aldous made the radical decision to abandon this very comfortable lifestyle, this life of leisurely scholarly pursuit, and move to Venice and enter the cutthroat business of printing. It's a little difficult for us to get our mind around that. But it's a highly unorthodox decision. It would be like Terry deciding to uh, leave Charlottesville, move to Southern California, start wearing hoodies at Washington Internet Startup Con. It's all the surface, that's what it looks like. But I think the key to understanding Aldous, understanding this decision and other decisions that Aldous made, is to view him through more lenses than simply as a printer. I think the decision that Aldous made, and I don't think there's really good evidence for this, if you read the prefaces to his texts, Aldous viewed printing as simply an extension of teaching, a way to leverage his teaching of the classics, in Greek in particular, to more to a wider audience than just the two young privileged princes of Carpe. So he packed his bags and he moved to Venice. His first location was here. San Agustino, a little red arrow there, so you actually see where that house is. That house actually still stands. You can go to this uh, uh, piazza in Venice today and see it's a private residence, amazingly. There's a little plaque on the wall, rather high up on the wall, that says, yep, Aldous was here. 
Uh, and this was the second location in San Paterni, right here. This building has been torn down, so you can't visit that. These obviously are images from the, um, the Barbary map of Venice from 1500, and um, extra credit if you can actually find these locations tomorrow at coffee hour in the, uh, uh, the reception room of uh, Rare Book School. Venice was not an accidental destination. It had a lot going for it. It was a commercial hub. It was a city in which wealth was determined not by the ownership of land, obviously, not by the ownership of heads of cattle and material possessions like that. It was really uh, a city where wealth was determined by commerce. It was the hub of commerce. Um, there was a playwright by the name of Bill Shakespeare who wrote a play, I think, about that. There was also already a robust center of printing in Venice. Indeed, by the time all this arrived around 1490, the Venetian printing industry had gone through uh, several booms and busts that actually looked very much like the internet boom and bust in 1999 through 2001, an explosion of printing operations followed by about 90% bankruptcy rates, and that had already happened a couple of times. So printing was relatively well established. Perhaps more importantly, after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, there was a diaspora of Greek readers and speakers and their manuscripts that made the relatively short track from Constantinople, Byzantium, all the way, there they go, there they went, all the way to Venice. So essentially, they got on the boat and they got off at the first stop, which was Venice, not a bad place to be. So once again, we have the right people, not just all of us now, but this gathering of Greek scholarship in this right place called Venice, where the printing industry had already uh, taken off. Oldest arrived in Venice somewhere around 1490. The date of his arrival is a little uncertain. But there is a sort of quasi-announcement. There was a publication in 1490, not by Aldous, called the Musarum Panegyris, which essentially the convocation of the muses. It's kind of a highfalutin uh, um, testimony to the benefits of a classical education. Printed in Venice anonymously, probably by the Feast of the Tortis, probably around 1490. It is seven leaves. It would make for a very quick collation. And in this little tiny pamphlet, of which I think there's only one, maybe two copies in North America, alas, not in the Clemens collection. Uh, the Morgan Library has one. He basically lays out what looks like a constitution or a mission statement for how he wants to apply this new technology of printing to the critical importance of preserving classical literature and classical patrimony. Aldous is perhaps best known for his device, the dolphin and the anchor. The image first appears not as a printer's mark, but it appears in a woodcut, a very small woodcut, in the, the 1499 Hypnotomachia of Polyphile, justly, I think, regarded as the most beautiful illustrated book of the Renaissance. So there's the dolphin and anchor there. I won't ask you to actually read uh, what's below it, but there's a motto attached to it. Spoida radios in Latin, festina tarda. Today we think of it more as festina lente, which means? Very good. You didn't think I was going to ask you to read Greek or Latin when you came here tonight. So this was an image that was known to Aldous, but it was not new to Aldous. Aldous actually borrowed the image itself from a coin, a denarius, printed, minted during the reign of the Emperor Titus, around 80 AD. That's Titus up on the obverse. Not a terribly attractive fellow, <laughs> although you probably shouldn't say that to his face. And on the reverse of the coin, there's that very familiar dolphin and anchor. This is a coin that's about that big. It's, it's roughly the size of an American dime. It's a pretty small thing. But Aldous knew about this coin. We learn in the 1508 Aldine publication of his adages that Erasmus, 
who was one of Aldous' editors, very much like Michael, Aldous had a very good staff around him that made him look better than he really was, probably, like Michael. He adopted this image as his print for a couple of reasons. One, the whole idea of making haste slowly appealed to Aldous, and in Erasmus' auditors in 1508, he said, Aldous actually referred to the fact that he felt like the dolphin symbolized speed of production and the anchor stability of purpose, sort of a twin mission statement operating behind the press. The fact that this was an image that was borrowed from one maritime republic, Rome, and applied to another, Venice, is a nice touch, and the fact that there are echoes of classical antiquity is a nice touch as well. This is all Erasmus writing after the fact, so there may be a little bit of historical revisionism there. What we do know is that the image first appeared as a printer's mark. This is the iconic image we all know in the 1502 edition, uh, second volume of uh, Aldous's edition of the Christian poets, interestingly. So prior to 1502, uh, other than the polyphily, where it was a, uh, a, a woodcut, the device does not appear. So it doesn't appear in all the great Greek folios of the late 15th century. The contributions of the Aldine Press to the world of books are legion, and those contributions form the broad outline of an exhibit that I'm putting together along with my co-curator, George Fletcher, uh, scheduled open at the Grolier Club in February of 2015. So mark your calendars. That's not a coincident date. February of 2015 marks the 500th anniversary of the death of Aldous. And so we're putting together an exhibit and a catalog that goes with it that'll look at the wide variety of the contributions that Aldous and his successors made to the world of books. Given the brevity of our time tonight and, and, and the fact that I have more work to do too, I'm not going to go through all those because we would be here all night. Um, let me just refer to a couple of them in passing. Aldous was the first to print classical text in an octavo format. A very small, you, you all know what this is, a very small, uh, a handy format. In 1501, the Virgil, the Horace, this is the Juvenal, uh, and the Martial followed in 1502 by Lucan, Sophocles, Statius, Valerius, Maximus, Ovid in the Catullus, that was a very busy year. In 1503, the Euripides. This was a format that, that Aldous, I'm not sure, knew the bibliographical term octavo, but he called it his libri portatiles, his portable books. And he intended them to be published in very, very fine uh, uh, textual editions without accompanying commentaries. There's not a whole lot of scholarly and marginalia around the sides. It's just Euripides. That's all it is. But for the first time in history, you, the great unwashed masses, could own your own copy of Euripides. You could have your own classical library. That's kind of a new thing, and it's kind of a cool thing as well. I think, once again, as we view Aldous through multiple lenses, this is not just a reflection of Aldous's desire to teach and to distribute the knowledge of the classical world. It made good business sense as well. These books were highly regarded and they sold well. And what is the sincerest form of flattery? Plagiarism. <laughs> Aldous wrestled with counterfeits or contrafactions throughout his career. As soon as the books left his shop, the French got their hands on them and printed very quickly passable enough editions mimicking everything down to the typography of Aldous and passing them off as Aldines. 1501, 1502. It's sort of like the knockoff handbags on Canal Street in New York with the Louis Vuitton label on slightly askew. There was a brand value to that dolphin and anchor. There was a brand value to the House of Aldous that stood as significance of the quality. 
Uh, all this sought and obtained concessions from the Venetian Senate and even the papacy for his works, uh, perpetually in vain. And he included in many of these editions what we would think of, what we might think of as a proto-copyright type statement. He would, he would observe the um, um, concession from the illustrious Venetian Senate. Um, I can't remember what the rest of these are. Uh, but I love the language of some of these. I think what we're seeing here for the first time is really the first concept of intellectual property and how it should be protected. This, by the way, I think is an underappreciated and an under-researched area of the old dying press. The language in some of these is delightful. 1501 Marshall, for those of you who read Latin, may dicas tibi non predictum. Don't say you haven't been warned. I mean, no, you know, quit it, stop it. A closely related contribution of the Aldine Press lies in the area of book design. Aldus did not print many illustrated books. He was sort of a, um, here's the text, and the text is all you get. There are, of course, a couple of notable exceptions to that. The notable exception being the Hypnotomachia Prolifolia 1499, a book which, that one book alone could justify a course at Rare Book School. You could spend a week, you could spend a lifetime looking at that book alone, the contributions that it made to, to uh, page design, the integration of text and, and design, not to mention the content, the fascinating content of the book itself. I am particularly fond of another 1499 publication, the um, uh, 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 Formicius Maternus, which is a uh, collection of astronomical texts. You see the zodiac there in the middle, and I just, I, I just, these images to me are delightful, all woodcuts. So all this didn't shy away from illustrations, but where he used them, he tended to use them, and here it comes again, in a teaching capacity, a pedagogical capacity. The highlight of this is the 1513 Caesar. This was intended to be used to study Caesar's Gallic Wars, a text that today beginning Latin students still use to study Latin. All of Gaul is divided into three parts. This is that text. Two-page woodcut right in the beginning of the book, colored according to a color scheme laid out by Aldous in the preface, where he says to the reader, France should be this color, Italy should be that color, color Germania that color, and these are the colors. Every copy that I've seen, I've seen one copy is washed, crime, uh, but these colors are there in different shades and different, different brightness, but they're always there. These are not printed. This is not printed uh, in the press. It was applied later, probably in a kind of stenciling, it is thought. It's a pochoir type approach to illustration. But this is an active pedagogical tool. This is a way to learn Caesar. This is a way to read Caesar's Gallic campaigns and actually follow around in the text exactly what was going on. This book, the 1513 Caesar, also stands as evidence of Aldous's insistence on accuracy. Two woodcuts of the fortifications of Oxlodon and modern-day Marseille unfortunately imposed incorrectly so that the woodcuts faced the wrong text. This kind of thing drove all this crazy. I believe that he caught it late enough in the press that rather than stop and cancel or reprint, what he actually did was he went through every copy and he altered and put the right label in by hand. In most copies of the 1513 season that I have seen, there are corrections in the hand of Aldous Minutius. That's a control freak, but a control freak with an insistence on accuracy uh, that, that stands out. Of course, Aldous's most lasting contribution to the book arts lies in the field of typography. 
1499 Bembo, which is a modern typeface, improved on Jensen's Roman type, the 1501 Virgil, famously the first book printed in italic type, readily copied, of course, by the French. The French are the bad guys in the story. <laughs> Aldous even experimented, not terribly often, but from time to time with Hebrew types. This is from his own 1514 grammar. There's the Hebrew alphabet printed from right to left, as it should be. He was a stickler for that. And this is a delightful book. It actually includes little examples of how you, too, can learn Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And he prints a wide variety of things, the Ave Maria, um, uh, what was over the, uh, the, the, the verbiage over the cross, in these multiple languages uh, so that you can read them uh, at home. Uh, all of these deserve far more time than the three or four minutes I've just given them. Come to the exhibit, February 2015, Grow Your Club, Mark Gallows. <laughs> Aldous's primary contribution to typography, and where I believe he really had a role to play in the salvation of Western civilization, lie in the development of Greek printing. And Greek desperately needed saving. 600 years ago, the Greek language was literally in danger of dying out. Manuel Chrysolaris arrived in Florence in 1397 to assume a newly established chair of Greek studies. And Leonardo Bruni, writing about his arrival, noted, and I quote from a letter, there are plenty of teachers of the civil law, so you will always be able to study that. Something there were changed. Had to work on it. <laughs> but this, referring to Chrysolaris, is the one and only teacher of Greek. If he should disappear, there would be nobody from whom you could learn. There are almost certainly more people on the face of the planet today that can read ancient Greek than could read it at the end of the 15th century. This was a real, genuinely almost a forgotten language. Much of Greek literature had already been lost, even as of the 15th century, even as of Aldous's arrival on the screen. Through contemporary references and other works, we know what did exist, and of course we know what exists now, and the gap between the two is striking. I've just chosen a handful here of classical authors. Sophocles, we know, wrote over 120 plays. We have seven. Euripides wrote about 90 plays. We have 19. And from contemporary references, we're led to believe we don't actually even have the best 19. These weren't the ones that actually won the Panathenaea uh, Festival. Aristophanes, the first comedic playwright, 32 lost plays. Even Aristotle, who was the best preserved of classical authors, is known to us only through about half of his work. Tables like this keep classicists up at night. These are like nightmares for classes, so I have nightmares about this tonight. <laughs> it is my contention that the robust application of printing technology to the Greek classics, and Aldous's contribution in particular, is directly responsible for the preservation of the patrimony of Greece. And to the degree that, that is the foundation of Western civilization, hence my overarching claim. The story doesn't begin with all this. I've already made reference to some uh, earlier uh, printers. I've made reference to the arrival of Manuel Chrysolaris in 1397 to teach Greek. And that marks as good a date as any for the beginning of a resurgence of interest in Greek studies uh, in Italy. Uh, Chrysolaris returned to Constantinople in 1403. He took students with him, notably Guarino Guarini. When Guarino returned to Italy several years later, he brought manuscripts and he established Ferrara as the real center of Greek studies for the rest of the century. Among his students were Francesco Barbaro, Leonardo Giustiniani, and Vittorino da Feltri, any of whom are worthy of a lecture or a class of their own. 
De Feltre, in turn, taught Greek to George Trapezuntius, Theodore Gaza, and Nicholas Paratus, each of whom would ultimately be printed by Aldus. There's sort of an apostolic succession at work here. In the 15th century in Greek studies, who you learned from, and in turn, who you taught, was a really important thing. And when you read about, when you read these letters, people are constantly reminding you, well, I, I learned from Manuel Chrysolaris, or I learned from Vitrina de Feltri. There's a, there's a sort of a humanist version of an apostolic succession uh, taking place. There was a sense, it conferred a sense of legitimacy, of authority. I have received Greek wisdom from Manuel Chrysolaris, and I am now passing it on to you. The fall of Constantinople in 1453 and the diaspora that followed that, as we've already seen, led to an even greater influx of Greek scholars, readers, teachers, and uh, writers circulating throughout Italy. With all of this going on throughout the 15th century, it comes as a bit of a surprise, it's a little bit of a mystery, why it took so long for books to be printed in Greek. It wasn't a lack of source material. Robert Bolger, in his book The Classical Heritage and Its Beneficiaries, counts at least 1,400 Greek manuscripts present in Italy at the end of the 15th century, representing no fewer than 89 different authors. And we know, famously, because many of them are still there, Cardinal Bessarion gave his collection of 482 Greek manuscripts to the Venetian uh, people in 1468. Those of you who are taking uh, Mark and John's courses know that printing took place in Latin and German, of course, in the 1450s. The first printed books in French and Czech in the 1460s, Italian and Hebrew were first printed in 1470, English and Spanish followed in 1474. So 20 years into the era of printing with movable type, no complete book had been printed in Greek. And the book to hold that honor is the Greek grammar of Constantine Lascaris, a contemporary, not an ancient author, that was printed in 1476. Prior to 1490, prior to all this arriving in Venice, Less than a dozen books, a dozen separate editions, had been printed in Greek. Why? How many of you read Greek? It's not a terribly easy language to read, and it's an even harder language to print. Here's, here's Greek 101A for you. The Latin alphabet, of course, has 23 letters. Uh, no J, no U, no W. The Greek alphabet has a little bit more. It has 24 letters with, of course, both upper and lower cases. But here the story gets much more complicated. Greek language has seven vowels versus five in Latin, and there are more toppings to these vowels than at a Baskin-Robbins ice cream store. Let's look at one vowel, omega. Omega stands alone. At the beginning of a word, most Greek vowels take a breathing mark, a spiritus aspor or spiritus lens, a hard or soft breathing mark, depending on whether or not it's aspirated, ho versus Oh. In addition to that, Greek is a tonal language. There are accents that are acute, grave, or circumflex. Modern scholars actually believe that ancient Greek had a very tonal, almost a sing-songy type quality to it, and that these diacritical marks represented the rising, the falling, or, the, or both, in circumflex sense, uh, tones. Some Greek vowels, when they are followed by the other Greek vowel, yota, can drag that yota underneath them into a subscript so that there's yet one more diacritical mark that can be applied to a vowel. And of course, these all apply to the capitals as well. If, so I'll do the math for you. If these forms were all cast separately, that's 30 different sorts for the letter omega alone. All Greek vowels can take breathing marks and accents. Alpha, eta, and omega can furthermore take these yoda subscripts. 
If you do the math on the possible variants, this leads to 162 different sorts for Greek vowels alone, and we haven't yet considered consonants, ligatures, or combinations of letters, and abbreviations. Robert Proctor tried to count the number of sorts in the early Greek type of Leonicus and Alexandros and gave up at 1,223 different sorts. That's when he gave up. Proctor was a very, uh, didn't give up easily. There were early attempts at Greek typography. All this was not the first. And it went all the way back to Schiffer and Fust in Mainz in 1465. Although neither could read Greek, they wanted to capture in a publication of Cicero's Paradoxica Stoicorum um, six Greek headings. And the way they did it is they cast nine, not 1,200, nine Greek characters. And they used Roman letters that looked like Greek letters. So for example, they used the Roman letter A to stand for alpha. Well, that makes sense. That would lead you one astray. They also used A to stand for delta and lambda as well. So this was hardly a real step forward in uh, Greek typography. Other printers simply didn't try. This is Simon Panitz, um, Lactantius of the Opera 1465. It made it a little hard to read this image. But they simply left blank spaces for you to go get someone to fill it in. They didn't even try. There's a little bit of Greek there, and go find someone who can fill it in. It wasn't long before printers cast basic Greek type. These images are all taken from Proctor's printing of Greek in the 15th uh, century. Notice how similar the Greek type is made to look like Roman type. It sort of stands on its own. It's a little bit uh, boxy, and it's a little bit straightforward. This was to avoid the problems that were created by all of these diacritical marks and the punctuation marks. There are no subscripts to it. This is readable. If you read Greek, this is readable. But to a Greek reader of the 15th century, this is like reading a second grade primer. This is not terribly sophisticated Greek. A further solution to the problem noted or observed that the real complexity that took place in Greek typography was really in the lower case. So we should just print everything in the upper case, make it a little easier. This is typography borrowed from the monuments you might see in Greece. So this, the, the center part of this box is an example of that um, typography. It's not terribly elegant. I think it would be rather difficult to read an entire text in Greek capitals. And I can't help but note that in a 21st century uh, culture, accustomed to the conventions of communicating by email, this just looks like we're all being yelled at in ancient Greek to me. <laughs> not terribly elegant. So if the difficulty around the typography was one reason that Greek printing didn't take off any earlier than it did. Let me offer another. Here again, I'm going to ask you to view all this through a slightly different lens. You're familiar with the, the concept of Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the best. Maybe there wasn't a lot of Greek printing up until all this was arrived because there wasn't a lot of demand. Maybe there simply wasn't the demand that justified the complexity, the expense, the energy that went into creating this or any other Greek font. But how do we reconcile this with the observation I've already made that there was this resurgence of Greek interest in Italy that went on throughout the 16th century, uh, the 15th century, and particularly after uh, the diaspora from Constantinople in 1453? I believe that the demand for Greek created its own supply that the Greek community in Italy had such an enormous output of manuscripts that that satisfied the need. And if you think about what I've, what I've characterized as the apostolic succession, the idea that a manuscript was in the hand of a certain Greek scholar lent it legitimacy and authority. And so there wasn't a lot of necessity to put that text into print. As one example, consider Demetrius Damilas, 
He was the one who printed the first complete Greek text, 1476, the epitome of Constantine Lascaris. In his day, Demilas was not considered a printer. He was a scribe. And we have today about 50 complete Greek manuscripts in his hand, 50 in one hand. This is someone who was a scribe, not really a printer. The Greek scribal tradition was alive and well throughout the 15th century, and indeed the last we hear of Demilos was in 1506 when he was appointed by the Vatican as the official scribe, not printer. Printing to him was a side project, if you will. He was really a, printer, a, a, a writer more than anything else. Greek readers relied on familiar and trustworthy hands. A text in a known hand lent not only a sense of familiarity, but also a sense of legitimacy and tradition. So as of 1490, as of the arrival of our hero in Venice, the state of Greek culture was still largely reliant on this manuscript tradition, with only a few attempts at translating that into print. Aldous co-opted the tradition. I think this is one of the brilliant insights that Aldous had. Rather than try to be something different, he based his early Greek fonts, and the attribution of this is still somewhat under debate, but he based his early Greek fonts on known Greek hands. He borrowed from the legitimacy of the tradition. If you look at his first font, this is the first, it's undated, probably 1495 Museus, and compare it to the script of Emmanuel Rousseau, one of these Greek emigres that I referred to. There's a lot of similarity there in that. The second Greek font used for the Aristophanes also, at least in the main body, uh, modeled on the hand of Emmanuel Rosotis. Now we have breathing marks, we have accents, we have ligatures, we have subscripts. No wonder from when Aldous arrived in Venice in 1490, the first book he printed was around 1495. What was he doing for five years? <laughs> casting type. <laughs> Francesco Griffo designing and casting these enormous uh, uh, sorts that had to be uh, used to print this. There are about 300 separate punches for letters in the Aristophanes, uh, plus there are 24 additional for accents and four for punctuation. There, for example, there are seven different forms of the letter alpha in the Aristophanes. There are seven different forms of the letter nu, depending on where it fell in the word and what uh, vowel followed it. Uh, I have to show you this. One of the developments that Aldous made was kerning, and those of you who are descriptive bibliography, David drew our attention to this picture just this morning. It was already in the presentation. But the development of kerning allowed, this is an alpha with a, uh, a smooth breathing mark, allowed for this to begin becoming a little bit simpler over time. Um, nevertheless, you still see the full complexity of the Greek typography. This is in the third, the 1502 Herodotus, modeled on the hand of one of Aldous's editors, Marcus Musurus. And then finally, the fourth in the Sophocles of 1502, modeled on the hand of Aldous himself. I think those are remarkably, uh, remarkably similar looks. Instead of hundreds or even thousands of sorts, now in this fourth Aldine Greek, there are only 70 for the lowercase. The typography becomes a little bit more standard and a little bit more readable. Aldous's Greek typography found its ultimate expression in the monumental Editio Princeps of Aristotle printed in six folio volumes from November of 1495 through June of 1498. The complete book, or, or the complete work, consists of 1,792 folios of Greek. And that is more Greek than had been printed by all the presses in Europe combined since 1450. If Aldous had retired in 1498, his legacy would have been assured. That alone, keeping Aristotle in print. 
And although very expensive, and they're even more expensive today, these books were not trophies. They were actually meant to be used. This is not an item from my collection, but I love it. Um, look at the marginalia in this. This is the kind of book Roger Stoddard would love. If you, you can sort of see in the, the margins here. I mean, every page, almost every square inch of every page of this copy of the Aristotle is covered with uh, very dense uh, marginalia. These texts, a lot of these texts, were aimed at an audience that already read Greek and gave them the ability to move from the manuscript into the printed tradition. But from a business perspective, that lens, again, it was not a broad enough audience. So what is a good businessman to do in such a circumstance? Broaden the audience. It is no coincidence that much of the early output of the Aldine Press related to instruction in the Greek language. In 1495, Aldus printed the Eratemata of Constantine Muscaros, followed in the same year by the Introductionis Grammaticae of Theodore Gaza. In 1496, the Thesaurus Cornucopia, selections from 34 different Greek grammarians, perfect bedtime reading. In 1497, the Greek Dictionary of Crestonis. In 1498, the Institutiones Grammaticae Graecae of Frau Berno Valeriani. All of this while the Aristotle was in the press as well. Aldous was a very busy man. He may even have worked himself to death. Years later, Aldous referred to, and I show you this just because it's funny and I love it. I think it gives us an insight into Aldous's personality. In um, the preface to the 1513 Cicero, Aldous said that he was so besieged by people coming to pay him or to visit and pay respect that he had this mounted over the wall. Quick Latin track, 1514 Cicero. Whoever you are, Aldous asks again and again that you state your business briefly and then go away. Unless you come like Hercules to support the weary arms of Atlas. For thus it has ever been, whatever you want, and however many feet come this way. It's in all capitals, and I think Aldous intended to be yellow. This was in 1514, not, not, uh, but about a year before his death. It is safe to say that the later critics of typography were not so kind to Aldous's innovations. No less than the great Robert Proctor, in his printing of Greek in the 15th century, dismissed the Aldine Greek, accusing the font of, and I quote, an absence of dignity and a restlessness expressed in the want of restraint in the voluminous curves, the endless variety in the size and form of the letters, and an incredible complexity of abbreviation, which makes the deciphering of a Greek text no small difficulty to the inexperienced." End quote. Kurt Buehler shared this opinion in a 1950 monograph in the papers of the Bibliographical Society. Quote, his press work was indifferent and his types were poor. It has been said, and I believe with all possible justification, that his Greek type set back the study of that tongue by 300 years, end quote. Ouch. Finally, Martin Lowry weighs in on that topic in his 1979 book, The World of Aldous Minutius, and I quote for a last time, it remains true that unless he is a skilled paleographer or well acquainted with the text he has to hand, the modern reader who attempts to study an Aldine Greek text will soon experience a prickling in the eyes and a woolly sensation behind them. This is a feeling I have experienced myself. So I'm about to go way out on the limb and disagree with all three opinions. I always wait for the bibliographical gods to strike me down when I say that. Who am I to disagree with such eminent bookmen? I'll tell you, I am a bibliophile, but I'm also a businessman. And so was Aldous. 
And I think it is that lens that explains some of these choices that Aldous made. To borrow that look and feel of a humanist hand was to access a long manuscript tradition and make the transition into a new world of printing comfortable, accessible, and marketable. I fear that the opinions of Messrs. Proctor, Bueller, and Lowry are more 20th century aesthetics applied to a 15th century problem. It is my belief that it was pure economics and marketing that drove Aldous's innovations in typography as much as the aesthetics of the day. Furthermore, I think that Aldous understood something rather profound about the human condition. We are creatures of habit. We do not like change. Technological change, in particular, is frightening. There are people today who are not on Facebook. I'm one of them, actually. There, I'm sure there are plenty out there. Paradigm shifts are often engineered to look like the previous paradigm. It borrows from the legitimacy of what came before. This is not just in Greek. Consider this image, and I, I love this comparison. This is a manuscript of Juvenal, around 1490. Just take it in, just for a second. You have a running title at the top, title of the book, the satires, a chapter title, Roman numeral 10. Left justified lines, the first letter set off somewhat, and the verse that follows. Compare this now to the 1501 Aldine Juvenile imprint. Now, I'm not claiming that the Aldine Juvenile was based on this particular manuscript. I'm claiming that a lot of the printing that took place was based on the manuscript tradition. This was a very familiar aesthetic, a very familiar feel. Human nature is immutable. We see these same dynamics at work today. Go to www.newyorktimes.com. There's a mask ad on a website of the New York Times. It confers that legitimacy and that trustworthiness. Aldous knew this. This was the following benefit to humanity. The canon of Latin classics had already been established in print long before Aldous came along. These are the Editiones Principes, the proper Latin plural of Editio Principes, in case you're taking notes at home. So most of the Latin works had already been put into print. As we've seen, however, very little had been preserved in the Greek canon. It took Aldous with his love for Greek, his apparently inexhaustible supply of energy, and a dogged dedication to the classics and the ability to print in Greek to save the Greek canon. Other than Homer, practically every Greek classic first found its way into print through the house of Aldous. The Ditio Princeps of Aristotle, Aristophanes, Thucydides, the playwrights Euripides, Sophocles, Plato, Athenaeus, the Greek Bible by Aldous' heirs in 1516, a year after he died, a pretty good record. In that counterfactual world, where Aldous didn't exist, or decided not to go to Venice, I wonder how much of this might have been lost forever and not preserved at all. If this long list of Aldine Greek editiones principes doesn't stand as monument enough, let me give Aldous himself the final word. In the preface to the 1513 editio principes of Plato, printed probably just about 18 months before his death, Aldous noted that some, and I quote, some learned men consider me a modern-day Hercules. Had an obsession with Hercules. Because, ignoring all difficulties and dangers, I have rendered greater services to the cause of letters than any other person for many ages past. This has so far entitled me to their esteem that both in person and by letter, they tire me out with their praise. <laughs> but I don't believe them. Nor in truth have I ever yet published a book 
with which I have been pleased. Such is the regard which I bear for literature that I wish to render those books which are intended for the use of the learned not only as correct, but as beautiful as possible. I will leave it to the judgment of this learned audience whether or not all this accomplished those twin goals of preserving Greek literature and culture and doing so in an elegant and aesthetically pleasing fashion. But I think you know where I stand. Thank you. So as the Desbib students dash back to Clemens Library to do their homework, thank you, David. <laughs> um, if we have time for a couple questions, Michael, I'd be happy to, to answer them now or at the reception afterwards. Yes, ma'am. Um, you talked about the, the pedagogical purposes that Aldous had in a lot of his printing. Do you think he also had some pedagogy in mind with the Hitnerah Mafia? No, I think he had mine in mind. <laughs> um, if, more research needs to be done on this as well. There are a couple of very curious publications in 1497, 98, 99, which is the biggest, for which um, we, we've also paid was contract work. And you know, while he was undertaking the, the I, I think the Aristotle just hung over his head as he was printing this this massive Aristotle that took four years to do. Uh, he had to buy paper, he had to buy type, he had to make pressing, he had to make compositors, and, and, and he was running the business. I think he was actually a very good businessman, and this is something that, that, that's usually overlooked, and I think that was part of it. That was just for money. He had capital, and he, someone paid him, we think we never paid him, to actually print, uh, to, to print the book. Um, but it worked. If, if you look at, and, and I, I may misquote this, so don't quote me on it, but if you look at the average lifespan of a printing press in Venice, from about 1474 to the end of the 15th century. On average, print press lasted about 18 months before it went out of business, went bankrupt. Or Gutenberg was the first of that example. Um, the Aldine press lasted for three generations. His son took over the press when Aldous died in 1515, or his father-in-law and son, and then his grandson, Aldous Jr., operated the press until it sort of waned out in about the year 1596. So, 18 month average, 100 year actuality. They were doing something <laughs> right over that time. I focused this presentation on all the senior, but the, 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 the second and third generation are, in my mind, under researched and every bit as fascinating as the first. Was, yeah, Mike? Was the Jayatna a vanity book? Um, the, the 1495 Day at Nevembo's Day a very small book, the first Roman type, actually the first appearance of a semicolon really? in modern usage. All this invented the semicolon as it's modern as it's used today. I that's a good question. I don't know the answer. It did not it, it did does not fit into his classical uh, 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 program. So I, I'd like to conclude that it that it was. Um, a small book, easy to print. Beautifully printed, but not part of the classical program, so probably printed for, for, um, for money. Karen, is there any merit to the portrait? I'm sorry. Is there any merit to the portrait, the 18th century portrait you showed? Um, the merit to it, this one. Yeah. That comes. Um, it's actually a copy except for this part, I believe. It's a copy of a frontispiece in a publication of Aldous Jr. that is believed to be the closest thing we have to an actual representation of what Aldous Sr. may have looked like. 
And that's why Domenico Marimani used it um, on the title page of his 1759 biography, which is the first biography that's often overlooked. It's also a, a like a short title bibliography of the Aldine Press. It predates Renard by, by quite a few years. That's that's the only that might be misfire. No, that, that it's actual representation. No, no. Aldous's son was very young when Aldous died. So Paolo Venuzio was three, four, five years old when Aldous died. So the father, Torsani, the father-in-law, ran the press until Paolo came of age, and that was fraught with difficulties. So Aldous's own son probably did not know what he looked like. It's unlikely that his grandson would have any greater insight into that. Mike. Can you say something uh, perhaps about the importance of patronage in, in the culture of Venice in the last decade of the 15th century and the first decade of the 16th? Um, enormously important. I mean, I mean how, how's that? I mean, yes, I mean, it's, it's um, Aldous relied very heavily on not only cultural patronage, but financial backing as well. Um, he was almost certainly not financially the controlling partner in the Aldine press. It was his name, and he sort of was the, 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 the brains guy behind it. But there were a number of other financial silent, fortunately silent, partners in that um, financially let him basically carry on with what he wanted to do. So that financial patronage was very important. And, and equally prior to that, was as was the patronage of his uh, employer, um, the Princess of Carpi and their family. So that, no doubt, gave him connections and gave him a calling card when he arrived in Venice. As a Roman citizen, not as a Venetian. We think of him as a Venetian, but throughout his life he was a Roman citizen. And from time to time, um, actually had to leave Venice when things with Rome got a little dicey. He was not necessarily persona non grata, but it, it became a little dicey. So there were there are a couple. There are actually three um, uh, interruptions of the Aldine Press between 1494 and 1515 for a variety of things. One of them uh, political. Aldus had to leave. One of them when the plague hit Venice, um, and the third, which escapes my mind. So there were definitely he was he relied on the patronage, but the patronage only went so far. Yes, sir. I'm asking a sort of related question about, from a business standpoint, the uh, financing of startup costs. Maybe that's part of the story of the challenge there. Unless there's more to elaborate on how you described a very long period when he's trying to get his pipes cut. I, I, um, maybe the counterfactual that I go with that is to say, why didn't something similar happen in Florence and the human circle around the Rose the Magnificent? I guess a little later, the Chimpy family, but obviously the same, well, Greek revival, but even humanist. There's no question in my mind that between all this's arrival and when um, his pressman pulled the first uh, uh, page, that there were not only types being cast, but there was uh, finances being raised. Unfortunately, there is very precious little, no information between 1490 and about 1495 as, as to what was going on. But we do know that there were early financial backers of the press. We do know, in response to your question, that some of the items, some of the, the imprints were underwritten, basically paid for. Um, so I imagine that all this spent a very busy five years lighting all that out. Uh, the details of that are unfortunately lost in the mists of time. But there are enough people who are interested in backing that kind of operation that it 
didn't happen in other cities in general. I, you know, I, think, I think that does go back to the counterfactual. I think it goes back to that precarious balance of having the right person and people, not just all of us, but that surrounding uh, group, in the right place in Venice, the center of commerce where paper could come in and books could go out mm -hmm. uh, at this right time. One of the areas of my collection that, that I sort of accidentally kind of backed into, but have found very interesting and worked on building out, is all nine imprints in contemporary bindings that are not Italian contemporary bindings. Right. Because it's evidence of those imprints showing up in far-flung places at a very early date. I was telling Michael yesterday, I own um, two different of, of, of the contrafactions, the Aldine forgeries, the counterfeits. Um, so so a, a, a French counterfeit of an Italian book in an English binding, signed and dated, Cambridge. Um, all this taking place within about an 18-month period, the imprint, the forgery, and the, the English binding. Um, the, the book trade was a very... It was printed for a world market that included the all and the rest of it. So let's see. Yeah, the, the ones I have in these bindings are all counterfeits, and that's fascinating to me as well. Why? It's like there must have been a guy taking the counterfeits to Cambridge and getting Nicholas Ferenc uh, to bind it. He was the binder of, of all these that I own. Yes, sir. Um, did all of us have to learn to master the technicalities of printing, or did you do it by associating with Griffo or acquiring the knowledge that way? There's no evidence that all this ever cast or set type. <laughs> So I, I think his role, I'm, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he knew his way around the boundary. His role is probably best, in a modern sense, regarded as a publisher, more, in a, more so than a printer. So yes, I mean, the role of Francesco Griffo, his uh, uh, punch cutter, was incredibly important, not only in the Greeks, but in the Roman and the Italian. As well, so he was surrounded by a very good group of editors, including Thomas Linacre, was an editor on the Aristotle. Erasmus was an editor on the Aristotle. Um, Typecutters like Griffo and others. So it was. It was the, when I broadened the statement out to the right people in the right place, it was all this and that surrounding community that he that he pulled together. Megan, did you have a question? Uh, George Fletcher and I are in the midst of still brainstorming the shape of, of the exhibition. So maybe now that you've asked the question, <laughs> um, we, we want to look at, at um, the contributions of all in some of the obvious era, areas like, like book design and production. But I'm very interested in exploring more this, this issue of intellectual property and the copyrights and the warnings and things of that nature. I want to look at all this as contribution to collectors. The Aldine Press was collected I mean, there were collectors of the Aldine Press who bought from all this. Jean Grolier, after whom the Grolier Club is named, um, um, bought and had gloriously bound books from, directly from the Aldine Press. So the press has been collected for 500 years. So we'll look at that as well. The other thing we may look at, I haven't talked about this, but in the waning days of the press, so under the direction of Aldous Jr., we're now in the 1570s, 80s, and 90s, it's not uncommon for Aldine imprints to have in the back, bound into the back, um, a, a gathering that is a price inventory list. And, and I, I have this image of Aldous Jr. looking over his shoulder at the warehouse and saying, how am I going to 
get rid of it. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm publishing the 39th edition of Cicero. I'll, I'll put a price list in. And you can see from, from imprint to imprint, you know, six months later there's a new imprint, and certain titles have disappeared. So do we conclude that they sold out? Certain prices have dropped. They're not selling at all. I mean, it's a really interesting insight into the, the dissolution of the all-dying press, which died with a whimper and not with a bang in the, the latter part of the 16th century. So there are a number of what George and I refer to as tributaries that we're, we're trying to pursue, and the pedagogical <laughs> one is, is, is potentially, potentially one of them. Well, our lecture series has certainly ended with a big bang and, and no whimper at all. This was extraordinary. And uh, we'd like to thank you by giving you a, oh, thank you. a little token of um, Hey, there's me. There's me. There. <laughs> <laughs> Looks just like you. And uh, please remember, everybody, that there's a reception in Scott's honor that will follow in the reception area of Rare Book School, to which you are all most cordially invited. And I ask you to please join me in thanking Scott for a stunning lecture. <laughs>